Do your children seek the truth? How about within the pages of a novel? And where can you find a novel that is Christ-centered and not tainted with the lies of evolution? Well, right here, within the pages of the Truth Seekers Mystery Series by Media Angels Publishing. As a mom and owner of Media Angels, my daughter and I co-authored a series of books that would teach a love of finding the truth and include a focus on the truth about God's creation. I hope you join us within the pages of the novel or anytime at MediaAngels.com. I pray you always seek truth. This podcast is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. What is creation? Did God create the world in six days and rest on the seventh? Does anyone really care? These questions and many more, including teaching tips and great resources, are presented in the Creation Science Podcast. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and it's my pleasure and honor to be your host. Some of these shows are from my Best of Creation Expos, and other presentations I've completed throughout the years of teaching on this topic. I'm the owner of Media Angels, Inc., a publishing company that produces books, audios, and videos to help you and your family in your Christian walk. Check out my books and other podcasts at MediaAngels.com. To get the show notes for this broadcast, go to CreationSciencePodcast.com. And now, let's learn together. Hey, everyone, and welcome. This is Felice Gerwitz with an episode of the Creation Science Podcast. Today, I have a special guest on the line. I I am no longer uh, visiting the homeschool conferences. I did a minimal run back in the day when I was um, speaking at homeschool conferences. But one of my favorite people that I would see at conference was Dr. Jay Weil, and he's my guest today. Welcome, Jay. It's great to be here, Felice. So um, I remember the first time I met you, you won't remember the story probably, but I had purchased your biology uh, and went up to you and I said, oh my gosh, I said, you're so much. And you said, shorter than you thought. And I said, no, younger than I thought. <laughs> because you're, for those of you that don't know him, he has a great sense of humor. So of course, you know, I said, you're younger and you said we were going to be lifelong friends. Yep, so absolutely. Um, here we are all these years later. And, you know, it it just was such a great book. And so you have another uh, series that is out now. So share that with us. Well, uh, I started writing an elementary series, gosh, back in, well, must have been, I can't even remember when, several years ago, uh, because the folks in my father's world uh, 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 were using a book called something like Science in the Days of Creation or something like that. And it was going out of print. And they asked, can you write something like this where you use the days of creation uh, to, you know, to introduce the scientific subject? So I was like, yeah, I could do that. And I never thought I'd write elementary, but I thought oh, this will be fun. And so I made it hands on. You uh, have an experiment every time you do science, you're usually doing science twice a week at that age. Every time you do science, you have some hands-on uh, experiment to do. And so I did the days of creation. It was a lot of fun. And then I thought, well, you know, creation's the beginning of history. What if I just kept going right. now? 
And what if I, my next mm-hmm. book just started with the human history we know and started using that to introduce the science? So uh, the next book is Science in the Ancient World, and I just start with the ancient Greeks, the Ionians, and I, show, I talk about what they discovered mostly. You know, I, I concentrate on what they got right, but sometimes you have to talk about what they got wrong, and you tell them, the students that it's wrong and so forth. Uh, but so mm-hmm. I just go through the development of science in the next four books all the way up to the end of the 1800s. And so the students get a real education on how science actually works. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the Chuck yeah, Colson cool. book, uh, uh, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back. That's science. <laughs> and if you teach it, right. uh, if you teach it chronologically, you see that. Right. Very cool. Yeah. So um, that's available. You can go to Dr. Uh, Weil, and that's W-I-L-E dot com. So www.drweil.com. And also, uh, Jay has a blog that is phenomenal. Um, it's his typical writing style. It's very clear, concise, you know, a few big words thrown in. So I bet your readability score is pretty bad, like mine is <laughs> on, on websites, you know. We, we flunk on readability because you have to dumb it down to get a good score on that. But, um, but no, it's, it's really well written. And what's really nice too, Jay, is that you take the time to answer questions that people uh, post. And so um, with a lot of times with other references that they can go look at. So it's really good. So have your kids, you know, look at that if you're, or look at it yourself, um, but but it is a a great place to start to get some education. And today our topic is going to be on exciting scientific discoveries and why it's exciting uh, for creationists, especially. And for those of you listening, the show notes will be available at creationsciencepodcast.com, and this is episode twenty three, and it's going to be called "Latest Science and Creationism." So. Let's start with, you know, why this is such a great time, uh, Jay, to be a creationist. Well, the main reason is there's an enormous amount of scientific work that keeps confirming creationist predictions. Some of it's coming from the secular scientific community, but some of it's coming from the creationist community as well. And that's probably the most exciting aspect. You know, creationists used to be focused and still are focused on uh, talking to the common person, the lay people, and letting them know, hey, look, science uh, doesn't support evolution the way people, uh, some people claim it does. And that's a very important part of creationism, and obviously I do that in my textbooks. But science moves forward when scientists do research about new things. And for a long time, there just weren't enough creationists. There wasn't any money in creation uh, uh, research and so forth. So there wasn't much actual research going on. But nowadays, creationists are doing experiments. Some of them are publishing in the secular literature, like uh, Dr. John Sanford uh, is publishing several genetic studies in the the standard secular literature. one of his studies uh, looked at a, a virus, the H1N1 virus, over 90 years because um, uh, they had uh, uh, samples of it, frozen samples of it from 1918. And so they looked at it over 90 years and actually showed that natural selection doesn't weed out the harmful mutations. 
<laughs> and that's one of the what? principal things that is supposed to do. You know, it's supposed to keep everything fit by weeding out the harmful mutations. And they showed that in the H1N1 virus, that's not the case. And in fact, the H1N1 virus should be a very strong test of natural selection because the H1N1 virus is constantly fighting the immune system. So it's a very, what we call highly selective environment that in the end, any uh, harmful mutation ought to cause survivability to go down and ought to get rid of that mutation. But that's not what we see uh, in the data. Um, and they, you know, uh, there's an old, it's kind of complicated, but there's a, uh, a theorem that people have used for years called Fisher's theorem that, that, math, that mathematically supports evolution. And they showed mathematically in the secular literature, Fisher's theorem doesn't work. Um, so they're doing some really great stuff. And one thing they did really recently, which is just amazing, for years, evolutionists have said, look, <clears throat> we know evolution can produce new traits because, for example, we found these uh, nylon digesting bacteria uh, in this Japanese, uh, uh, in the wastewater part of a Japanese uh, uh, nylon factory. And nylon's artificial. So there wouldn't have been any reason for um, uh, bacteria to, to digest nylon. This has to be a new gene. Well, Sanford, and I think it's Cordova in this case, Sanford and one of his colleagues published a paper in the secular literature saying, look, here are the natural genes that exist, and several of them are active against nylon. So several of these natural genes could have just could have been used by these bacteria. So these bacteria don't have new genes. These are genes that have been around for a long time. The bacteria just adapted them to use against nylon. Uh, so really fascinating stuff going on. And a lot of this is confirming predictions that creationists have made for years. And probably the very biggest one uh, was a few years ago now. Uh, but uh, the, there was a big research initiative called the ENCODE Initiative where they analyzed more than 1,600 data sets, had all these uh, scientists working on this. And what they, were show, what, they what they did was they found out for different human cell types what portions of the DNA were being opened up and read by the cell. Now, if it's being opened up and read by the cell, it's got to be used, got to be being used by the cell. Well, what they found was if you look at all the cells they had studied, not all the cell types, but all the cell types they had studied in the human body, they found that more than 80% of the genome was opened up and read, which means more than 80% of the genome is functional. Uh, now, you know, evolutionists have told us for years only about 2% of the human genome is functional because the human genome is highly evolved. Evolution produces a lot of mistakes. So the vast majority of human DNA are useless mistakes. We now know that at least 80% of, of human DNA is not useless mistakes. It's useful stuff. And this is dramatic because creation has been saying this for years, so that's a creationist prediction confirmed. Moreover, the more genes that you have or the more sections of DNA you have that are being used, the more natural selection has to work to keep that from deteriorating. Uh, and there's a really famous evolutionist, his name is Dr. Dan Grauer, and he says, look, if ENCODE is right, then evolution is wrong because there is no wow. way evolution can maintain 80% of the human genome. And now not all, not all scientists agree with him on that, but the point right, is right. It, it, it's a conf confirmed creationist prediction and it goes way, way counter to everything evolutionists have taught us since the 70s when it comes to the human genome. Right. And I've been always a proponent of teaching both. I know yeah. uh, some families, you know, especially in, in the homeschool community, which we're, 
we both have been part of. You've actually been, um, you know, university professor, and uh, and we didn't even talk about your your credentials here, Jay. We just jumped right in. <laughs> but um, you know, you you have quite. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. But I wanted to just confirm that if you understand what evolutionists have been claiming for all these years, they're looking at things, you know, based upon. You know, at first, uh, and, and you can add to this, Jay, the Darwinian evolution, and then, oh, wait a minute, no, it's neo-Darwin because, you know, we've, he had some things wrong. And then it was like, no, it's, you know, whatever the new flavor of the month is because it's not fitting in with what they were saying. And, and we hear about natural selection bit, way back in, in Darwin's book. So, um, you know, First, let's just talk a little bit about, you know, like you were explaining that that it's not sustained. You know, this is unheard of for so many uh, secular scientists as they're studying this, but it's not something they can sweep under the rug because it was such a massive study. And so we don't care about these things. You know, um, we just hear the wrong information repeated over and over and over again. You know, for example, well, we all know that 65 million years ago, the dinosaurs roamed the earth. And if you don't agree with that, then you must be, you know, stupid because we all know that. So, I mean, even when you hear documentaries and things on TV, they make this preface with, we all know this information. Well, we might not all understand it, which is why you need to, to study evolution right next to creationism. So you can see the model and just understand uh, this is what evolutionists teach. This is what we believe as a creationist and understand those two. So um, first comment on what I said, and then I want you to share, you know, a little bit about your background. So uh, you're absolutely right. You have to teach both models together for the simple reason that very many studies, not just one or two, very many educational studies have shown that when you present controversy in science class, the students learn science better. Lots of studies have been done mm -hmm. on this, and they even do things like they, they teach a flat earth and a round earth. We know the flat earth is wrong, but nevertheless, when students are done with that module, if they've been presented the flat earth theory as well, which we know is wrong, they still learn uh, physical geography better than if they aren't presented the flat earth theory. So we've known for a long time that when you present science in the context of controversy, students learn it better. Uh, that's really well known in the literature. Uh, and so regardless of whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, if you want good science education, you need to present controversies in science. And obviously, evolution, creation is a controversy in science. And once again, remember, mm -hmm. even if you think one of those is absolutely wrong, the data tell us that even if you teach the wrong thing along with the right thing, students still learn it better. <laughs> so just for right. quality of science education, you should be doing this. But obviously, the other reason to do it is if you actually present the two side by side, generally speaking, most unbiased observers will end up seeing that the creation side is, is more scientifically plausible than the evolution side. Right. It's less of a, yeah, less of a fairy tale. It just, it just makes sense. I did a, um, actually, I, I did it at a church with about 150 kids and parents, um, a middle school, high school class. Um, that wanted me to present creationism beliefs. And I decided to do this exact thing that we talked about. And I said, you know, I did one slide. This is what an evolutionist 
you know, perspective is. And this is what a creationist. And I basically said to the kids, I'm not going to tell you, you know, obviously, you know what I think, you know, we're sitting in a church. Um, I said, but I want you to tell me what you think. And then we had a lot of discussion afterwards. And it was exactly that the creationist perspective makes so much more sense on a logical basis, never mind even scientific. So, so it's really cool. Okay. And then uh, you have a, a scientific degree, so share that with us. Oh, and this actually relates, uh, just as a, as a side note, you know, I, I do have a PhD in nuclear chemistry, and I was a university professor, still am a university professor, just not full-time. I was a full-time university professor for many years, doing original research uh, full-time and teaching full-time. Now I only do those things part-time, but I'm still doing those things. And the reason I got started writing curriculum for homeschoolers was in my university courses, my best students were the homeschool graduates. And there are lots and lots of reasons for this, but one thing I have noticed is most of these homeschooled students have been taught, you know, creation evolution side by side. And as a result, they know the science better. Uh, and so it was actually my experience as a university professor that led me to start working with homeschoolers because I saw these students were well above average. And one reason they were well above average is they had been, um, uh, taught both models. So yeah, I uh, uh, mm -hmm. t still teach at a university uh, uh, every now and again when I want to. We, we call that an adjunct <laughs> professor. It's definitely the way. Right. So I taught last year. I taught thermodynamics to engineers last year, but I'm not doing anything this year. Uh, and I'm doing some original research on uh, uh, formation of limestone. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I, I keep doing uh, uh, scientific research. I've, I've been published in the scientific literature. I think I have about 30 articles in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. Um, so uh, I am a scientist, but most of my time is spent in science education. Oh, very cool. Okay. So, um, you know, thanks for sharing that. So give me some more examples of creationist predictions that have been predicted um, by the data because you, know, you gave me, you know, some at the beginning, but I want to, you know, maybe preface it with something that like an evolutionist had said, because I've studied this for many years, you know, for over 10 years before, and I've written some curriculum with a creation scientist. She was a scientist. I was more the educator and made her more difficult stuff, you know, <laughs> understandable. I said, if I understand it, then, you know, a parent will understand it. But, uh, you know, it, it's sometimes difficult. Like I'm, I'm, you know, thinking as you were saying all this stuff, oh, well, yeah, that goes with this and this. So start with that, Jay. Like what is something that an evolutionist has said? And then let's talk about what has, is coming forth that a creationist has predicted. Well, you know, and before I, I, I tell you, you know, a lot of people don't understand this. What makes a theory scientific isn't that it explains the data. It's not that it makes sense. What makes a theory scientific is it can be used to predict data that are not known. Because that's how you really decide whether a theory is useful and whether or not it's close to reality. Because if it can make a prediction about something that is not known, and then it's investigated, turns out the prediction is true, that gives you a lot of uh, uh, support for the theory. So for example, uh, uh, carbon-14 is a radioactive form of carbon. Every living organism has some carbon-14 in it. Um, and carbon-14 uh, for a radioactive substance decays pretty quickly. 
even if I had a couple of tons of carbon-14, after about 60,000 years, there would be so little of it that it would be undetectable. Um, and so uh, if you find a fossil that has any carbon-14 in it, and you don't think there's any way carbon-14 could have gotten, gotten, been introduced to it, then in the end, you have to assume that fossil is less than 60,000 years old. And so a, a, a scientists or a, a evolutionists have said for decades, you're never gonna find any carbon-14 in dinosaur bones. Dinosaurs you know, died out 65 million years ago. Uh, unless there's some artificial way carbon-14 is getting into the bones after the uh, dinosaur died, that carbon-14 would have decayed away you know, 60,000 years ago, shouldn't be any in it. Well, creationists for years have said, we should test dinosaur bones for carbon-14 because this is a perfect distinction. Our model says these dinosaur bones are only thousands of years old, therefore they should have carbon-14 in them. Your model says these dinosaur bones are millions of years old, there should be no carbon-14 in them. Well, dinosaur bones are pretty valuable, uh, and so people, and you typically have to destroy the bone to do the uh, analysis, because you have to get into the bone and make sure you're getting stuff that belongs to the bone and not stuff that might have come in later. Uh, so you have to pretty much destroy the bone, and people didn't want to destroy dinosaur bones, so never happened. Well, eventually creationists got enough money and got enough you know, uh, people doing research that they found their own dinosaur bones, did their own uh, destruction of the dinosaur bones, and, and then sent, these out for, sent the uh, samples out for testing. And sure enough, every dinosaur bone that has ever been tested this way has carbon-14 in it. <laughs> and the carbon-14 wow. levels indicate that the maximum age, and it's just the maximum age, but the maximum age is about 30,000 years old. Now, we think they're less than that because carbon-14, it's very difficult to get a, a solid uh, number for carbon-14 beyond 3,000 years. But uh, nevertheless, the, the evolutionists say zero, the creationists say some, and the creationists are right. Uh, and in fact, this has gotten so serious, uh, you know, uh, in order to do these tests, uh, these carbon-14 tests, you need a particle accelerator, and they're kind of expensive. Uh, so what, what everybody does is they don't have their own particle accelerator. They prepare the samples, and they send it to a lab that supports itself by doing these tests. Uh, and so you take your sample, you send it to the nuclear lab, the nuclear lab does the test. So uh, these creationists would have been using this one particular lab, the best in the business. Uh, and that one particular lab, when they found out that they were dating dinosaur bones, because you don't normally say to the lab, here, this is a dinosaur bone, date it. You just say, here's a bone sample, mm -hmm. date it, right? And when they found out right. they were dating dinosaur bones and getting uh, you know, tens of thousands of years old for them, they actually refused to take any more samples. Wow. Yeah. Now, so what does that if, tell you? Yeah, what does that tell you? Because, <laughs> and I say that, I've said this over and over again, even if you believe those bones are millions of years old, I don't, but I'm, I'm willing to talk to you if you do believe that. If you believe that, you need to find out why there's carbon-14 in them. And the only way you're going to do that is to do more testing. But what they've decided to do is put on the blinders and say, we don't care that there's carbon-14 in there. We don't care to ever explain that because that challenges our belief that they're millions of years old. And folks, that's not science. You know, that's religion. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, my co-author, Jill Whitlock, used to do this because she was an oil and well ge geologist. So she uh -huh. said that a lot of times that they would send things off to be dated. And the lab always asked them, what year do you think, you know, like, what do you think? 
And so she would give him a date and she said it was always like plus or minus 10,000 years. And she said, you know, at one point she kind of questioned it. And this is before she, you know, was a Christian and she was a secular scientist. And she said, you know, she questioned it and said, well, let me try it and just see if, you know, if, if it's off or whatever. And they said, no, 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 you have to tell us what you think. So I don't know, you know, um, if they stopped doing that or whatever, but, um, you know, the particle accelerator people um, really need to have a, you know, I don't know who owns that company, but, you know, what's, what's in it for them is, is my question. And why would you, you know, squelch this? Because like you said, it's not scientific and obviously, you know, there's an agenda um, which we're often, often accused of, Jay, you know, oh, you're just looking for something. Well, this is perfect evidence here. And people don't hear about it. I never heard this story, you know, uh, well, so that I appreciate on you sharing lab. it. That depends on the lab. Mm -hmm. uh, when I worked at the Nuclear Structure Research Lab at uh, the University of Rochester, that's where my research was being done, I didn't do radioactive dating, but there was a group there that did, uh, uh, and they were one of, one of the uh, best in the business back then, uh, and uh, they would never ask. Uh, they would never ask what it's supposed to be. They wanted to be truly blind. But a lot of labs mm -hmm. don't want to be truly blind because it helps them. <laughs> to, right. So it does depend on the yeah. lab itself. And in fact, that, that's the big, I became a young earther. I was, I was happy with, a, with the earth being billions of years old when I was at university and, and early graduate school. But when I started working with these people who do radioactive dating, I saw how the sausage was made. And I said, this doesn't look right. So I, that's when I started researching, you know, different data related to the, the age of the earth. I became skeptical about the, these billions of years specifically because I saw how radioactive dating is done. Uh, and, you know, right. you, said, you made a statement. This is really, really important. Um, uh, you said, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, lab would say, you know, it's this many million years plus or minus 10,000 years. These error bars, this is the first thing that I saw that was really ridiculous. These error bars are totally unrealistic. Uh, so, for example, uh, there, uh, a few, uh, several years ago now, there were some um, uh, diamonds from Zaire, and they were dated to be 6.0 plus or minus 0.3 billion years old. So according to that error bar, the youngest they could be is around 5.7 billion years old. Problem is the earth is supposed to be only 4.6 billion years old. So these diamonds <laughs> are older than the earth, even once you include the error bar. And that's how ridiculous these error bars are. These error bars only tell you about how sensitive the instrument is to the isotope you're measuring. They don't tell you anything about how accurate the date is. Um, because these error bars are just ridiculously, you know, you, you can take uh, radioactive samples from, and this is where I saw it when I was uh, at the University of Rochester, take samples from two different parts of a rock, date them both, and within the error bars, they don't agree sometimes by a factor of three or four. So it'll be, you know, 5 million years plus or minus 0.1 million years. The other one will be 1 million years plus or minus 0.1 million years. Obviously, those error bars are ridiculous because even with the error bars, right. these two samples don't agree, and they're the same rock. That's the problem. So explain to the audience that may not understand this why evolutionists throw in the billions of years. Like, why is, is more time better? 
Well, fundamentally, they need it. That's that, and that's you know the whole reason everybody thinks the Earth is old is because if the Earth were young, evolution couldn't happen. Uh, evolution requires billions of years because uh, it's requiring complete luck. So, uh, you know, initially there's no life on Earth, according to the evolution, the naturalistic evolutionary model. Anyway, there's no life. So suddenly we have to right. create something that's something like life out of just random chemical reactions. Well, you know, you can do random chemical reactions all day and you're never going to make life. But the evolutionist says, well, you know, yeah, the chance of this happening is really low, but if you got billions of years to get it done, it'll eventually happen. Uh, and so it took billions of years to get the first life form, although even with using their own numbers, they know that's not right now. Uh, according to the, the latest thing I saw, the earliest living thing in fossil records supposed to be 3.8 billion years old. So you only had 0.8 billion years to get it going. <laughs> but anyway, they need a long right. time. Uh, and every time you need to uh, count on mutations to produce something new and something novel in the genome, you're, you're counting on blind luck to get that done. So it takes a long time. You have to wait a long time uh, for blind luck to find this, uh, this new, uh, new uh, aspect of the genome. And so they absolutely need uh, an old earth. And so that's why it's just taught that way, because without it, there's no evolution possible. Yeah, and that and that makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, when I was younger, I know that they talked about millions of years. They weren't even talking billions. And then all of a sudden, I, as I was getting older, it seemed like that wasn't enough time, so we had to make it billions. Um, and we know so much more today, Jay. I, I am really excited about you coming on. And that's the thing, you know, it um, almost reminds me of, of the abortion issue, that it was just a bunch of cells. Well, now we know that it's not because of the increase in technology. And I feel like the same with this. Um, one of the things I read on your blog is um, about the dinosaur fossils and the exciting uh, you know, news that has come out recently. And I believe this gentleman is gonna be um, presenting uh, a paper soon uh, about this. So share, share what that's about. Yeah, so this is really intriguing. Back in 2005, a paper was published by Mary Schweitzer, who uh, uh, said she, you know, had uh, oh, had to, had had to cut open this, cut up this uh, uh, Tyrannosaurus rex femur, uh, and found soft tissue in it. And she said, based on all of her analyses that she could do before publishing the paper, this is tissue from the bone. This isn't something that got introduced later. Nearly every scientist on the planet said, she's nuts. There's no possible way this is true. These bones are 65 million years old. Soft tissue doesn't last that long. However, she kept doing some chemical tests and everything. She found it in another dinosaur. So some people got interested. So other people started looking. And other people started finding a soft tissue. Uh, and it got to the point where these two researchers said, we at random picked seven scrappy dinosaur bones from a museum. Uh, we don't even know what dinosaurs they're from. We just know they're found in Cretaceous rock. And out of those seven, four of them had soft tissue in them. And with a scanning electron microscope, this soft tissue looks like it's got red blood cells in it. Uh, and this soft tissue looks like it's got proteins in it. Uh, so now it's pretty much accepted uh, in, in, in a span of only about 14 years from everyone saying Schweitzer's nuts to now most, most paleontologists, not all, but most, saying, yeah, there is soft tissue in these dinosaur bones. 
And that's exciting enough, because once again, how in the world can you uh, expect soft tissue to hang around and still be soft 65 million years later? But what's really cool about this is a creationist researcher has gone to the next step. He's been taking these dinosaur bones, he's been uh, dissolving them in, in weak acid. Uh, uh, you know, if you take an egg and put it in vinegar, eventually the shell mm -hmm. will go away, but the rest of the egg will stay because the weak acid can attack the shell, but none of the soft stuff. Well, they, he does the same thing. It's not vinegar, it's EDTA, but he soaks these uh, dinosaur fossils that he and his group has, have found and, 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 and uh, gets rid of all the minerals. What's left is the soft tissue. He then isolates bone cells from it. So he's actually got soft bone cells from dinosaurs. He's done it with a triceratops and a nanotyrannus. Uh, uh, and so in the end, he's collecting soft dinosaur bone or soft dinosaur cells. And of course, cells should have wow. DNA in them. And in fact, he says, you know, his, uh, his uh, um, technology is enough to actually extract the DNA from the cell, but he can show that the tissue reacts to the chemicals that DNA is supposed to react to. So that seems cool. to indicate there's DNA in there. And so, and this is all, you know, nobody, nobody in the evolutionary literature has ever tried to extract a dinosaur cell before. This creationist has both uh, tri uh, triceratops cells and nanotyrannus cells. You know, and a lot of, you know, a lot of people who look at this say, oh, this can't be cells from a dinosaur. It's got to be some sort of contamination. But the key is he's looking at bones Bone cells have a very specific size, shape, and characteristics. They have these tiny little extensions called filopodial extensions. That's what these cells have. I don't know of any mm -hmm. possible contaminant that can look like that. But bone cells look right. like that, and that's what he seems to be getting. <laughs> and so that's really yeah, cool. And, oh. and there's a video. It, um, he's, oh, yeah. Dr. J called it Cool video of soft dinosaur cell that's on his blog. Yeah, he actually has really a video is, of him I want, turning the cell and the cell yeah. flops around because it's soft. It's not yeah. mineralized. Yeah, and it's really, and it's really uh, fun because when you're watching this, he's going, well, you know, this is what I'm doing. I'm manipulating it. Oh, well, it worked a lot better before you turned the camera on. And then, and then you watch it and it does, it does move. And you're like, that's impossible because if it's, you know, a fossil, it's supposed to be stiff and brittle and, um, and all of that. So, so this is really cool. And I want to just throw in, you know, uh, a, a pitch here. We wrote uh, the Truth Seekers Mystery Series way back when. Uh, my daughter, Christina, at the time was homeschooled. She's now an adult with eight little ones of her own um, homeschooling. But she and I wrote these books. And in book number two, Dinosaur Quest at Diamond Peak, and don't go try to buy it because um, it is actually out of print this second. We are redoing all books because we're updating them. And I'm excited to hear this research, uh, Jay, because it's going to be included in the book. But in the book, um, with the dinosaur bone that broke, we did mention um, the research about the soft tissue because that had just come out. I think the first edition of this book was 2001 and then it re it was uh, republished in, in 2007. And it was, it was great because um, at the time I was working with some of the ICR um, Institute for creation research scientists, and they were saying, you know, this just came down the wire um, as we were planning this book. So I felt like that was a God incident because we always like to have a creationist element in each of our books, it's a fun, fun read, you know, um, totally fiction. But 
it, it was uh, that point that was just coming out. And I remember this poor lady just being, um, you know, totally obliter- obliterated. It, you know, she, I think she had backtracked when she first said, said well, you know, we don't know yet. Uh, this is a theory, you know, can't get excited. Uh, we're not sure. But I'm really happy to hear that um, she did go ahead and publish and continue on. Because the truth really cannot be squelched. I mean, you can, they can take away your funding and you can't do it at certain universities, but I'm so happy to hear that there are these institutes. I'm happy to hear, I didn't even know you were doing research, Jay. So that's wonderful too. Well, and, that, and just, to, um, just to interrupt, just to interrupt you a second. Sure. Uh, this is the case with with the with the uh, the guy with the soft dinosaur bones or soft dinosaur cells. His name's Mark Armitage. He was fired from his university for discovering this. Now he says wow. it wasn't the discovery that he got him fired. It was once the discovery, once he published it in the scientific literature, students heard that we're we've got the lab that has soft dinosaur cells. And so uh, they started coming down to see them under the microscope. Uh, and this is what got him fired, he thinks, because in the end, too many students were seeing this. And that's, it's hard for students to understand how these uh, uh, dinosaur tissues are, are, so, uh, are so soft and how the cells are soft after millions of years. So it causes students to question the dogma, and that's what got him fired. Of course, he ended up getting a settlement, uh, and that's what he's partially using to fund the research he's doing now. So you're exactly right. The tr- they tried to squelch the truth. They did that by firing him, but he just ended up being mm-hmm. able to set up his own research somewhere else. Partly, and, from and that's why, <laughs> right, which is wonderful. But then yeah. that's why it's important for your kids to understand it. Christina in college ended up. Uh, taking anthropology classes and, you know, Florida archaeology. And one of the professors, when he talked about carbon-14, one of the little girls in class said, well, my, my, you know, I go to this evangelical Christian school. I wish I had my parents here that could, you know, argue this. Whereas Christina raised her hand and did the whole carbon-14 to niacin-12 to carbon-12. And the professor's eyes just kind of widened. And he said, that's a really, uh, you know, because she she basically had him, you know, backtrack where he used a number of years. And then she said, but but isn't it true that and, you know, he he kind of backtracked a little bit. And then she called me and she said, OK, mom, first week of school and I'm already in trouble. And the professor has to see, see me in his office. But he was delightful. And he basically said, your argument is is correct. And he was working toward his PhD, so he was still in that open, you know, uh, ready to discuss. But the the end of the story is he didn't want her discussing it in class, but she was welcome to come to his office and discuss. Exactly. And Don't interestingly, want to confuse your fellow came, students. Right. <laughs> she had facts, you know, she had scientific facts that were based upon research. And I think that's the key here, that when our kids see and study it and learn about it. And she did a lot more because of the novels and there was a lot of research involved. Um, It makes it um, something that you remember. So let's talk now about the oldest fossil that has soft tissue in it. This this is truly remarkable because, uh, uh, you know, 
it's hard enough to understand how soft tissue can survive and still be soft after 65 million years. But there is a, uh, a worm fossil uh, that's uh, 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 supposed to be uh, on the order of 550 million years old. The rock that it's found down, found in is supposed to be 550, it's Precambrian rock. It's supposed to be 550 million years old. Um, and uh, it has soft tissue in it. The uh, uh, researchers were uh, examining it with a scanning electron microscope, um, and they found that portions of the original wall of the, uh, of the worm are still soft. Um, uh, and so uh, they actually say minerals have not replicated any part of the soft tissue, and the carbonaceous material, which is the original stuff of the wall, is primary, which means it hasn't decayed or anything. So now not only do you have to believe that, you know, dinosaur bones, which are 65 million years old, can somehow preserve soft tissue and it keeps soft, but now you have to say a, a, a marine worm that was, you know, buried in marine sediment that hardened, that marine worm in marine sediment could hang around for 550 million years, and yet uh, the soft tissue in it, some of the soft tissue in it remains soft. There's just chemically no, I don't see any possible explanation for that. So are they just saying it's an anomaly? Because that's what Jill would say whenever they couldn't, you know, <laughs> well, pinpoint anything. On, she said everything was... Who, yeah, yeah, it depends on who you talk to. So some, some mm -hmm. evolutionists uh, think there must be a way to preserve uh, soft tissue. But it doesn't happen very often, even though the majority of dinosaur bones that have been investigated for soft tissue, they found them in. Uh, but it must not happen very often. Schweitzer herself, who believes in millions of years, is actually trying to uh, develop a model, a chemical model, where the soft tissue can be preserved. It's not been successful yet, but at least she's trying. So some people are actually honestly <laughs> investigating this, and that's good. Because mm -hmm. once again, if you believe it's millions of years old, then you better figure out how soft tissue stays soft for that long. So that's no problem. Some people still argue it's not really tissue, and especially, or not really tissue from the fossil, and especially for this worm, a lot of people are saying, no, 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 this is some microbi uh, my, uh, microbial thing that has gotten in there later and formed a film, and it just happens to look like the inner wall of the, of the, uh, of the worm. So uh, some people are honestly investigating it. Most people are making excuses. Uh, and that's just that not sounds Shakespearean you, to yeah. me. Yeah, even if you believe they're you millions know? of years old, it's not science until you can at least start trying to figure out how it could have stayed soft for that long. Yeah, and they 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 protest a little too much. Um, it, it's I I you know, I guess it's like you said, it's a good thing that they're trying to validate basically an extrapolated explanation of this. Let me just ask, Darwinism was, was dead because Darwin said fossil record will prove my theory, and if the fossil record doesn't prove my theory, then my theory is wrong. Fossil record has yet to prove his theory. So then we had Neo-Darwinism. What's the new flavor of the month now? Well, um, uh, what, a lot of folks are still uh, 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 dealing with the punctuated equilibrium model. 
the idea that, okay, we, we now know there are mutations don't produce gradual change because we're not seeing it in the fossil record. Uh, so we're just, we're seeing pretty much abrupt appearances of new, new uh, uh, organisms in the fossil record. So what must happen is some organ, some group of organisms ends up getting in a location where there's high chemical toxicity or high radioactivity and lots and lots, and they're just bombarded with mutations. And of course, most all of them die, but a couple of them get the happy coincidence of having so many good mutations that they end up producing a new creature just in the span of, you know, just a couple of generations or a few generations. So uh, if you look at the fossil record, you see, you know, uh, these things appear quickly because their intermediates only existed for a few generations. And the fossil record typically isn't sensitive to short time periods, it's sensitive to long time periods. So those intermediate varieties existed, but they didn't exist long enough to fossilize, uh, to make a, a big part of the fossil record. Uh, so in the end, uh, evolution uh, happens too quickly to fossilize. But then if you ask mm -hmm. an evolutionist, why don't you see new original organisms appearing now? Uh, they'll say, oh, well, that's because evolution happens too slowly to observe. So this is the perfect theory. <laughs> it happens too slowly to observe and too quickly to fossilize. And that's, that's where we are right now. And, and some people are calling that science. Uh, <laughs> and so that's punctuated equilibrium. And that's the only model right now that's at least consistent with the paleontological data. However, a lot of folks are moving beyond that even. And a lot of folks, uh, we know single-celled organisms can swap genes from different species. Bacteria are particularly good at this, but even uh, eukaryotes are fairly good at this. Uh, they can actually absorb DNA from dead, uh, uh, dead organisms that are not even in anywhere close to them in terms of species and so forth. And if some of that or, uh, DNA uh, is useful, it gets incorporated. Uh, there have been a couple of cases where uh, it's been shown in fairly simple animals. The sea slug, for example, when it eats uh, photosynthetic organisms, it can actually incorporate uh, for short times uh, the ability to do photosynthesis. Uh, and so there, uh, this is called horizontal gene transfer. It's not vertical in the sense it's going from parent to child. It's horizontal in the sense it's going from one organism to a completely different organism. That's well known in single cell creatures known in a few uh, uh, animals, but not many. There are a lot of evolutionists who are saying that's the big deal all sorts of horizontal gene transfer is occurring. And that's why we can't track evolution the way it happened because it's getting blurred by all this horizontal gene transfer. Uh, other folks are saying that it's all in development. Uh, we do know that there are some genes that make radical changes during embryonic development. And if those genes get changed just a little bit, the results can be radically different. Uh, and so, I would think of all of the versions uh, of evolution that's popular, that's probably the most popular these days, and it's called evo-devo, so evolution during development. Wow. So, yeah. And, and, and you know, honestly, <laughs> honestly, it, it, it's good that they keep changing the theory because, you know, it's right? particularly anti-science to stick with a theory that we know doesn't work. So I don't have a problem with them changing the theory. That's a good thing. The problem is they can't find a theory that works, but they still say it's fact. That's the problem. Right. If I have a theory right. that works, I, it's still not really necessarily fact, but at least I have a better idea that it could be fact, and I could justify telling students this is the way it works. But if I have a theory that doesn't work, 
then I can't call it fact. I can keep changing and that's science. And so I have no problem with going from Darwinism to neo-Darwinism to punctuated equilibrium to evo-devo. That's great. That's what science is all about. But if you can't find a theory right. that works, don't have the audacity to say it's a fact. <laughs> yeah. We can't say it's the flood. You know, it was a worldwide flood. We can't say it's a creator God because then you're getting into Get pushing into religion. your religion upon us. Yeah. So, um, so we come out with these things and see, that's the thing, like, as you're explaining yeah. the, the Evo Devo thingy with the DNA, I mean, I can see that. I could see how they would consider that really cool. And I would say as a creationist, no, that's just the hand of God. I mean, that explains how complex we are and how God works. So it's important to understand this. For you listening, this is just the beginning. Uh, go check out uh, Dr. J's blog. It's blog.drwilde.com. And also check out his website. It's drwilde.com. Jay, it has been delightful and promise to come back when you've got some more great uh, things that you want to share with us because this has been fascinating to me. Oh, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. All right, everyone, take care. And again, the show notes are on the Creation Science Podcast. Look for episode 23, and that is Latest Science and Creationism. Take care, God bless, and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Creation Science Podcast. You can find the show notes at creationsciencepodcast.com. And as always, reach out to me, Felice Gerwitz, at felice at mediaangels.com. Take care, God bless, and I hope you enjoy teaching your children and learning about the beautiful world that God created. Please share this broadcast with a friend, and thanks so much.